Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the executive director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Before we get into my interview with Josh Sabera, which is really, really exciting and dynamic, and we cover so many topics from coming out to sex education to ethical pornography consumption, um, his expertise as a Hollywood producer and how he started as a Hollywood publicist. Before we get into all of that, I just want to remind you all that we're going on a holiday break starting on December 21st after Mary DePippi, our chief contributor here, after her True Crime and Academia podcast. And I'll actually be with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team so I'll be with Mary and also our marketing director, Jaron Usta, in Atlantic City. So look out on our social media because we're going to be posting some updates. So follow us on Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And we just released our TikTok account. So follow us there at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We are going to be launching our Patreon right when we come back from our holiday break. So look for that in the middle of January. And we also are going to feature our first ever Instagram Live book club. It will be on January 9th, and we can now release who we're discussing. We're discussing Robert Jones Jr. and his novel, The Prophets. So get your hands on The Prophets during the holiday break. Um, also. There's an excellent audiobook too, uh, read and performed, I should say, by the actress Karen Chilton. So um, I'm going to be reading and listening to the audiobook because I always want to know what the audiobook experience is like. So I've also included a link to Robert Jones Jr.'s The Prophet, so you all can get your hands on it, as well as all things Josh Sabera related in the episode notes. So look for Josh Sabera's Porn Again memoir and Enemies Closer links in our show notes. And make sure you follow Josh Sabera. I have to say, he has some very, very juicy and exciting Instagram posts as well as Twitter. Okay, so here's a teaser of what's to come in my interview with Josh Sabera. With adult entertainment, um, you know, look, I think it's extremely, to, to a large degree, I think it's extremely health, healthy because I think it probably, you know, lets people have an outlet. I mean, listen, it was a lifeline for me, especially for someone who came out so late and hadn't had sexual experiences until I was 31. Um, it, you know, it's sort of, it sort of took the mystery out of it for me so that when I was in a situation to be that I was in which I was going to be intimate with because nobody takes you aside as cool you know they they teach you know they 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 in fact I think I talk about it in porn again because my dad was a urologist he was the one that came into school and had to talk to everyone about the birds and the bees which of course was mortifying <laughs> yeah uh, but they don't they don't speak to gay men and women um it's all you know everything you learn is from in my experiences from a heterosexual mm -hmm. through a heterosexual lens and so 
you know, so for me, it was a lifeline. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am so excited because I'm joined by who I consider a legend in the entertainment business, uh, but best-selling author, marketing executive, television producer, um, Josh Sabera. Hi, welcome, Josh. Hi, Andrew. I'm glad to be here. So there's so many questions I want to get to, but let's just start right at the beginning, which is <laughs> you went to University of Miami, correct? Well, I started at Syracuse University for one semester. And when it hit minus 40, <laughs> I was on the first plane back to Florida and transferred to the University of Miami. So that was after one semester. But to be honest, in hindsight, I think part of my issue with Syracuse, you know, the weather was an excuse, the being away from home for the first time was an excuse, but I think because I wasn't out yet and I wasn't comfortable with that part of myself, I think, it, that's what that's what the problem that was the root of the of the problem and I think had I been more comfortable with my sexuality I think I probably would have found my people and mm -hmm. stayed there yeah so and I think I remember now you detail all of this in your memoir porn again yes mm -hmm. okay which is hence the genre of memoir uh, <laughs> and when you do go to University of Miami it's really mm -hmm. interesting because you actually have a dual degree. Um, yes. Do you want to let the listeners know what your degrees are in? Yes, I have a degree in motion pictures um, and a degree in psychology. And I always argue that you need the psychology degree to navigate the entertainment business. <laughs> so yeah. it, it sort of, it, while it wasn't planned that way, it sort of became very useful. Yeah. Well, especially when you have characters like Claire in your novel, Enemies Closer, um, or even in Porn Again, where we'll get to it. I am so excited to maybe get some dish on Miss Television personality, even though I know you might be a little uh, zipped when it comes to actual identities. Um, but did you always envision that you were going to end up in LA? Was that your dream city? Yeah, I mean, as a as a kid, I would get lost in movies. That was my escape. Uh, so I always dreamed of the idea of being in Hollywood and moving in, in this business. And I remember specifically probably being seven or eight years old. And I remember my mother would be doing the laundry and I would stand at the door to the laundry room and I would say, do you think I'm ever going to meet Cher? I mean, not that somebody couldn't have figured out I was gay then, <laughs> but, um, and my mother would say, yes, I'm sure you will. Now, obviously she had no basis, you know, to, to, to make that, um, to make that judgment, but, um, that was always my, like, that was my dream. Like my dream was to be out, out here and, you know, in that world that I escaped to. Yeah. So do you feel that? And I have a deep affinity to LA, even though 
you might not hear it in my accent, but I'm a born and bred New Jerseyan. Um, and now I live on Long Island, which I just call <laughs> the sibling areas. They're basically the same thing. Yeah. And Long Island, I mean, you know, my family's from Long Island originally. And really? the um, okay. I think there's such a charm to, to, you know, parts of, you know, even more so. I mean, I love Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. But I also like the idea of being a little bit out of Manhattan and being able to get there in 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the suburban train towns. Like, I would agree. Um, especially, I'm glad I'm not the only one who likes no. the little displacement. And um, I mean, I, I loved yeah. New York. I loved living in Manhattan, but I just don't know if at this stage in my life, like, I need sirens and, <laughs> you know, the magnetic energy every second. Yeah. And your sister, you just came back from a trip, right? For yeah. your niece's bat mitzvah? Yeah. Yes. Um, my sister is a diehard Manhattanite, so I don't think she'll ever leave the city. Yeah. And she's actually in the city. She is. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And raising children, which yes. a so that's a lot of complication. Yeah. And that's all they know is this is, you know, city life and they, and they wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. Yeah. I find so. anyone born and raised in Manhattan are actually really grounded people. Yeah, yes, to some degree. Yeah, or um, calm. Very, they right. know how to deal with high press, pressured intensity. Yeah, it's a certain lifestyle. It's a certain way of going through the world that, that you sort of adapt to at that when, when you live in, in an area like that. Yeah. So, are you, would you say that you're bi coastal, that you're the LA, New York? I mean, I, I, I don't have a place in New York. So when, when I'm in New York, I'm, I guess I'm still a visitor per se. Um, but yeah, I go back and forth a lot. Uh, obviously during the pandemic that stopped. So I hadn't been in New York for a year and a half uh, before I was just there. So uh, it felt great to be back. And I felt like the city seemed to be I, aside from the masks and, you know, taxis are harder to get and things like that. But for the most part, I felt like I was in proper New York. Yeah. And yeah, so I go back and forth a lot. I'm in okay. the city a lot. Yeah, I love I don't know if you've ever seen when Jimmy Kimmel did that. He'll always do his on Hollywood Boulevard. I forget what the segment's called, but um, well, and he'll just pull the crowd. And yes. one of them was is Los Angeles or New York um, people who's, who are the more intellectual? New York. You think so? Yeah. Really? So, well, break yeah. that down. Cause I'm always curious about the LA psyche just because I have a lot of New Jersey um, I mean, friends and I family always, who move there. Yeah. I mean, I always joke that LA is a vacuous wasteland. Um, that's not, I mean, that's a joke, yeah. but, you know, there are certain um, cultural literacy that seems to be more prevalent in Manhattan. Um, you know, I see New York as sort of the center of the world, so to speak. Like, if you can't find it, do it in New York. It's probably not accessible. And 
in LA, I think there are a lot of very creative people, um, but it's a different sensibility. It's, you know, looking for what, you know, that what that script's gonna be or um, what the next reality trend's gonna be or what magazine or entertainment magazine TV show you can get on or appear on. It doesn't, you know, and again, this is a generalization because mm -hmm. there are there are intellectual people on both coasts, but you're more likely to find a person who's finished a book in New York. <laughs> that's yeah, that's, I just that's just my assessment. Yeah, I mean, and when I say I have family and friends in the LA area, they're mostly in Orange County. So I know your Belinda very well. And yeah. um uh Coda de very Casa. That's that's like a very different vibe. Oh yeah, I mean, um, that's when I saw a beauty standard that I just, you know, I think it definitely exists in the Northeast. But again, the stereotype is that beauty in LA is uh, cachet. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they joke that everybody in LA is a ten looking for an eleven. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's so funny, though. Um, <laughs> but you really do embody the Candor and Ebb song, New York, New York, with that idea you have, Josh, about making it anywhere. Like, if you can make it in New York, because the city right. can spit you out really quickly. Yeah, but I think that I think that's all I think that's all I think that's all how you view mm -hmm. your situation. You know, I, I you know, it. it New York, look, we know New York's an expensive place to live. And in order to live in New York in the way that we would want to and to be able to access the culture, you know, money become, you know, you have to have a certain amount of money to be able to do those things or figure out ways to, you know, win ticket lotteries and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, but, you know, it's an expensive city. It's a hard city. But I think the reason people flock to New York is because it what they get in return is worth it oh yeah and I am such a fan of New York and you're right if you just go into it knowing you're going to find the best of things in each situation I mean I know how to get $35 tickets to the Metropolitan Opera but there's a lot of hacks in New York too yeah and it you know there are there are ways to do it if you're resourceful um, but I never subscribe to the idea that a place or a city is what does you in. Mm -hmm. Like if you're resourceful enough and you are meant to be there, there are ways to exist. Yeah. Um, I mean, my thinking in LA is if I walked into a Starbucks right now, again, this is a big generalization, but that I would find a lot of script writers or those who want their project to take off. And I mean, oh. that's a big stereotype. If you walk into Star, I mean, listen, every Starbucks you find, you know, people who make it their office and that's fine. Like people need to get, get mm -hmm. out of their, you know, their surroundings and mix it up a little. And I guess that spurs some creativity for a lot of people. Um, I've walked into Starbucks here and I've seen people with full desktop monitor computers at a <laughs> Starbucks. Wait. How do you travel? At that's allowed. Well, I mean, I, I, I've seen it, you know, I would assume it would be a portability issue, but it, it didn't seem to phase, yeah. phase some of the 
people I've seen. But, you know, for me, I, I like to be, I, you know, I find my home very comfortable and I feel like I'm most creative there mm-hmm. or here because that's where I am. Um, so I don't go and work at a coffee shop or I, I just find it too distracting. I'm, I'm too busy looking at who's coming in and out and, mm. you know, it just, it, it, it takes me three hours to do what I could do in an hour at home. Yeah. See, I feel I had, I forced myself to go to a local coffee shop when I want to get grading done or something that is just, I know that if I don't leave that place and get that job done, I'm going to be really upset with myself. But yeah, when it comes to my creativity, I mean, the audience sees this when I do, um, promo for the ivory tower boiler room there's a lot of books and i'm very nestled in my library so i agree i think when it comes to my own connections it really does happen in the nest but mm-hmm. once in a while i like to you know check the scene out in the coffee shops maybe it's more because on, on no, li- as long as your library is not organized by color no mine is not organized by color which you you may remember I mentioned in Enemies Closer. <laughs> oh yes, 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 yes. Who? Which character is that associated with again? Um, it's Claire's house, okay. but it's actually based on a. You know, I, I know a number of people who do that, but it was actually based on a real celebrity's home, and I remember walking in and seeing you know how beautiful it looked in terms of color, and I was like wait, this is really the library of someone who doesn't read that much because how do you decide, how do you find a book you're looking for? Like, oh, I think I want something green today. I think I'll go for a blue book. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's a spectrum of the rainbow choice. (laughs) Right. It just doesn't seem functional. It's like, it's kind of like form or style over function. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will admit to you and everyone out there, I'm in the midst of enemies closer. So, you know, I did, I did a very nuanced analysis of porn again. Trust me. I mean, when I'm now going to coffee shops, I keep thinking, is this because I'm just trying to land a husband or a one night stand, but you know, don't want to give too much of my personal life. And either one is fine. It's true. It's true. I mean, um, I'm on prep and there's been a pandemic. So, you know, things are a little cabin fever right now. Um, yeah, you're for lost time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, now I feel right after I get done this episode with you, I'm going to have to start looking through my library because I actually started a library catalog for a Whitman project I'm doing in the South Street Seaport. So now my job is I actually have to input every book. And my friend uh, said, why don't you do that for your own library? I said, you know what? Maybe I should. Uh, it takes time. We'll see. It's have a catalog. We'll see. But okay. So I feel that all the work that you do, even when I pour over your Instagram, Josh, you have mm-hmm. such an in-depth analysis of understanding social media literacy. And I know that that's not un- unintentional. That has to be Mm -hmm. your publicity training. Um, Yes, but something to remember is when I was doing PR for the studios, 
um, there wasn't social media until, you know, it was the dawn of social media when I left doing that. Um, and I remember, in fact, I remember somebody who worked for me at one of the networks and she would hound me about Twitter. And I, I was like, honestly, can you just, can you just find me the page in People Magazine? I really don't, you know, and sure enough, you know, all of that stuff became, you know, became a major way of getting information to people. I think it's a double-edged sword. I think there are some really valuable things on social media. Um, and I think it introduces people to things and information that they should know about. But for everything that has, you know, that value, there's typically a dark side also. And um, I think that it's, a, you know, it's a huge source of depression, specifically in young people who, you know, get caught up in the compare and despair phenomenon of it. And um, I think the highly curated nature of it, you know, leads people to think that they're not doing as much or they're not being as successful. I mean, believe me, during the pandemic, I mean, everybody seemed so busy and and um, productive. I mean, if I saw one more fucking sourdough, um, and why was sourdough the thing? Like, why weren't there other types? I mean, there was banana bread and sourdough. Like, nobody was making anything else. It was interesting. Those weren't my carbs. My carbs were actually making my first ever noodle pudding. Oh, okay. And I was getting all these variations of add the raisins, don't add the raisins. And it became actually a big controversy on my Facebook because- Real about raisins versus no yeah. raisins. So yeah. what was the purpose of the, of the noodle pudding? Like you, wh why did you pick that? What? Well, probably because I wanted my parents to, I wanted to eventually make it when I went to see my parents. So I had- um. I think I made it in November last year um, and I wanted to test it out for myself, but I think it's because I've started to really embrace my Jewish roots, mm -hmm. even though I was raised Catholic. So there's a lot of layers around that, but. Um, Wait, you were raised Catholic, but so where are the, what, where are the Jewish roots? So the Jewish roots are on both sides, but they're like great grandparents. And then. Okay the family converted to Catholicism on both sides. Okay. Yeah. So I'm starting to like embrace the cuisine. And I, I mean, I love noodle pudding, <laughs> but we got a whole discussion on noodle pudding. What's not to like, I mean. I know, I know. But um, I had a wonderful Rosh Hashanah this year with my friend though. Um, and I don't eat meat now, but I made an exception to eat chicken matzo ball soup because... I can't pass it up, but okay. So <laughs> there are certain things you just have to do. No, it's true. It's true. Um, so when I think of all your work or when did you actually, this is probably a better question. When did you stop your public relations facing job? Would you say? I'm, I, you know, it was around 2010 that I stopped working for the networks and the studios. And um, I still did, I still, you know, I had, I have my own PR firm. Um, 
and I worked with a number of people through that for, for a number of years. Um, and I will still work with people who are friends of mine or I can, you know, help in that way. But it's just, you know, I don't really have the time mm -hmm. to do that as much anymore. And it's not something that I find as strategic as I used to find it. You know, it used to be that, you know, there was a 24 hour news cycle and, you know, you could, you could sort of plan when an article was going to run. You know, now everything happens in real time. There is no news cycle. It's by the second and in, in literally real time. Mm. And, you know, the art of a press release is sort of gone because you can do it in 140 characters or 200, whatever, you know, whatever Twitter is. So uh, it just became, I don't know, it just, it just started to be something that, you know, you just couldn't really, um, it just didn't have the same appeal to me at that point. Mm. Yeah. Is it okay if I choose two of your films that you've done PR for as case studies of just breaking down like what that actually involved? Um, Why do I know what, what one of them is, but sure. Well, you've known one. Yeah. I mean, I just started teaching my students hairspray, so. Um, and then the other one, I'm really curious about your work on the sixth sense because mm -hmm. first it was shot in Philly. Um, mm -hmm. so, and I grew up in South Jersey, so I'm actually Philly fans for everything. Yeah. And my aunt was actually an extra in the sixth sense in the bar scene, um, where yeah. I think it's, no, go uh, ahead. That was the start of my career. So that was not as you know, I, I wasn't as hands, quite as hands-on with that as I was with Hairspray. Um, but uh, yes, whatever, what, what would you like to know? Yeah, well, so I'm just <laughs> curious when, okay, so that's actually good. They're kind of bookends. So the Sixth Sense, how are you involved in what capacity? Um, you know, there was a lot of work on the awards campaigns for that. Um, you know, uh, Tony Collette, I believe, if I remember correctly, but we're talking a long time ago, was nominated for an Oscar for that. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of planning around, um, you know, getting people in and out of town and showing up at the right places. So they were wrecking, you know, award, you know, the Hollywood awards are all about campaigning. Mm. And so I, I dealt with a lot of the coordination of that. Yeah, because what is the award um, where the actors actually vote for each other? That's the SAG Awards. SAG Awards. Okay, because I know mm -hmm. that that's highly respected among the community. Um, yeah, it, it, there's, you know, there's award season. You know, I always say that in LA, it's, there's not summer, spring, winter, and fall. There's, you know, Emmy season, Oscar season. <laughs> You know, it's all it's all about <laughs> the awards. Um, so let's see. Uh, there's you have the SAG Awards, which are usually just before the Academy Awards. You have the Golden Globes, which are sort of going, you know, through an overhaul because of some issues they were having, as you may have read. Um, there's the, you know, the critics. You know, the the I don't know. There's the 
film critics or there, there's like mm-hmm. uh, the independent spirit awards there's like you know all in that two month period of time so there's a lot of coordination and getting the right people in front of voters and in front of influencers and mm-hmm. making sure they're at the right parties and you know all of that coordination is is a huge ordeal yeah so like say for the sixth sense even though you were you said you weren't really um as part of the mix just because you were starting out um, yeah you still i'm assuming that all in public relations everyone meets the talent or is that not true you don't always get to meet the talent um, I, I mean, I, I, most of the things I've worked on, I've met the talent. Okay. So, so like, and I've worked on, like, I worked with Haley Joel Osment on, let's see, Sixth Sense, Pay It Forward, uh, AI, and Secondhand Lot. I mean, I, I was involved okay. in, like, four of them. So, you know, I knew him from when he, the time he was 10 or 11 to you know, when he went to college. Yeah, I have to say, I think it's still one of the best shocker films. Uh, and, oh, <laughs> we could do a whole, I could spend a long time on The Sixth Sense just because um, that goes to, she's like vomiting. Oh, okay. Yeah. Never, I'm going to move mm-hmm. from The Sixth Sense into then Hairspray because Hairspray okay. was 2007 and mm-hmm. was with New Line Cinema, I think uh-huh. was, the production company, right? Um, yes. Okay, so what did your job look like for Hairspray in contrast to The Sixth Sense? I mean, Hairspray was uh, Hairspray was a lot, uh, a lot of work. Um, there, you know, it, it was, you know, it, it, people have an affinity for the material. People love the original film. They loved the Broadway musical. Um, and I think that, Adam Shankman, who directed it, did a great job of sort of capturing the spirit of it and and the color and the energy of it. Um, it was a lot of work because uh, we, you know, we, also DVD and Blu-ray was becoming, oh. like Blu-ray was sort of the thing at that time. And we had to keep the movie going so that, it translated to the home audience. And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of work went into that between time and like putting Nikki Blonsky, who was the lead, you know, we did, you know, we, we did a whole thing with the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and just coordinating that and the singers and the dancers and re-recording the tracks. And I mean, that was just like one, publicity event that I can tell you about. You know, well, it was I still a lot. remember when they found Nikki Blonsky because that's in the yeah. um in an ice cream store. Yeah, in a cold stone creamery in yeah. the Great Neck Great. area. Yeah. 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 One of my favorite towns, by the way. Um yeah. She's great. She's yeah, she seems nice... really great. Yeah. I've heard her on a podcast recently. Um yeah, and she did uh, you know, I I she did a I remember shortly after we were done with Hairspray, um, we, she did a show at what was the, it was, I think before 54 Below, it was Feinstein at the Regency, if I'm correct. Okay. And she did a 
a, you know, a night there, like a cabaret performance. And I went to see that and she was fantastic. Yeah. So you were really there with, I'm assuming that movie must have had a lot of rehearsal time. Yeah. Yes, it did. I mean, it, it was, it was, it was a huge undertaking, that movie. Yeah. <laughs> you I know, mean, it's just wonderful yeah. to rewatch it again because I saw it in the cinema when it came out. And just hearing my students who are mostly Gen Z, I'm a millennial. Um, and they're just cracking up of even when Nikki Blonsky sits on the garbage truck in Good Morning Baltimore. Yeah. Because I had seen the stage show two yeah. times before 2007. But I just, you're right, Adam Shankman did a really good job. I thought it was, I thought the movie was extreme. If yeah. you're a fan of material, I thought it was extremely satisfying. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that anybody could really be disappointed by it. Um, in my opinion. Yeah, not um, at all. Were great in their parts. I thought the movie looked amazing. Um, you know, the music was essentially intact. Mm -hmm. um, there were some really young, exciting people like Elijah Kelly. Oh, so uh, good. Was, is so talented uh, and such a nice guy. Yeah. And it, was, it was just a great experience all the way around. Everybody yeah. on them. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and having Queen Latifah and Michelle Pfeiffer coming back to music. I mean, the last musical I remember her in was Grease too. Um, well, there was the fabulous Baker Boys, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, oh, I don't know and that, that one. Oh, yes. Uh oh, the famous, I have something to watch. <laughs> yes, the famous scene on the piano um, where she, I mean, she's amazing in that. You, you should definitely watch that. Yeah. Well, who do you think my students are probably the most obsessed with from the Hairspray movie? I'm guessing Zac Efron. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like the whole class went wild. I'm like, wow, he's yeah. a real cultural phenomenon here. Yeah. I mean, I think he has, you know, I think he sort of has a cross appeal, sort mm -hmm. of the same way I think Channing Tatum does. It's like, you know, guys can connect. And mm -hmm. women can connect and guys aren't threatened by, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it sort of hits all the boxes. And I think Zac Efron and I think Channing Tatum have really like straddled that line very well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Channing Tatum literally straddled in Magic Mike. Yeah. But he, but you know, he's, he's, he, I mean, I have not worked with him, but he just, seems sort of unapologetically open to yeah. you know, you know to to satisfying his all of his audiences yeah and i also know channing tatum or when i've heard him be interviewed mm -hmm. um as you can tell i'm obsessed with insider uh behind the scenes of the actor studio but yeah he's very open with his sexuality and just his body, Channing Tatum. And I was curious because, I mean, how many of what we would call celebrities, which you mm -hmm. can get into that term, but how many do you know, would you say, just over all the years of you working in the Hollywood industry? I couldn't even, I couldn't even. Yeah, like over a thousand probably. 
I don't know about that. When you say no, when you say no, like intimately or met? Met. We'll say met. Yeah. I mean, I I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, it seems that though, um, there's a lot of authenticity, like being, you said unapologetic. Is that a common trait in those in the film industry that they're just unapologetic about their talent? Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Um, I, I, no, I think, you know, I think it's, a you know, you get just like in just, I mean, look, these are people and, you know, it's real life. And even though it seems like some fantasy world. It's not, it's, you know, there are people who are amazing performers, but are very shy. Mm-hmm. You know? And you can meet somebody, you know, and a lot of times people make a judgment uh, based on one, one sm- slight interaction. And, you know, everybody has bad days. Everybody has good days. Everybody, you know, you're dealing with human beings, not machines. And so, you know, I think, I, you know, I, I, I think some of the, the media has in a way like dehumanized people, like they become commodities and not, you know, there's not as much compassion for, you know, what might be a, a real life trauma or circumstance for some no, it's all, um, ooh, did I lose you? No, 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 you're here, you're here. It was just your headshot showing up. It's not all, um, it's not, it's just not all, you know, a, a consumer product. And I think, you know, I think people should be mindful of that, you know, and I, by the way, I'm not saying that they're, that when you make yourself public or you choose to do a, or you choose to have a career or participate in a career that will put you in the public eye, that you have to know somewhat what comes along with it, but people handle it differently. Yeah, I think you're right. There's such a humanizing element. And I just always imagine what would it be like if someone caught me doing such and such out in public? How would I be perceived? You know, you never, that's why when well, someone says, oh, no, but I yeah. remember back in the day, which I'm totally aging myself, but back in the day, if you were to meet somebody who had a camera with them, like, yeah. I mean, if you happen to know you were doing that and you brought a camera with you, now everybody has a camera on their phone. So somebody who's, you know, a, a recognizable name or face is subject to secret pictures, um, a camera in their face all the time. And by the way, I am by no means uh, crying my heart out for anybody. I'm just saying it's a different landscape. Yeah, I mean, 
in New York on the subway, I've seen a few Broadway performers, but I always just weigh in my mind, okay, they have their headphones on, they're preparing probably for their performance. Would I want to be like tapped on the shoulder and pestered? It's to me, it's more about just interactions with other people. Now, if they're doing a meet and greet, that's a completely different. Right. But also, you know, there are some people who, you know, it means a lot to them to, you know, have somebody recognize or appreciate. And I think it's just sort of being able to read the room and knowing what's appropriate and when and how you would feel if you were in that situation. Um, So I think there's a time and place for everything. Yeah. It's like if I was checking out at Starbucks and I saw Josh Sabera, take you for an example, Josh, because I think you're now a very public recognizing face. Um, You know, if you like caught my glance, I might say, oh, I really appreciate your work, Josh. Well, yeah, people, I think people, you know, I think people appreciate that. Um, But it's just you know, then, then you get, you know, somebody who just woke up in the morning, ran to Starbucks yeah. and he's got a, you know, a cell phone and then becomes the dilemma of, do I care or do I p- potentially disappoint hmm. somebody who's, you know, it's, it's a very fine line. Yeah. Yeah. But like you're saying, um, there's a type of public persona that, you know, each celebrity knows that they're in. They know that they're going to be recognized in certain situations. Um, I think it was Pfeiffer, funny that you bring brought that up. I think it was Michelle Pfeiffer who years ago said something like that she acts for free, but she gets millions of dollars a movie to put up with everything else. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, and... What I love about both Porn Again, which we'll start with, and then, you know, conclude with Enemies Closer, because I do think everyone out there needs to read both in tandem. Um, I mean, I started with Porn Again. I'm kind of curious what would have happened if I did Enemies Closer first and then didn't really have the biographical elements of your life. I'm not yeah. sure. Um, but first, Kirkus Reviews, when they call your memoir a spicy debut... Mm-hmm. that's salacious, provocative. I'm just curious, how did you, or how aware were you as a writer that you were creating such a candid account of your sexual life while also trying to maintain this intimacy with the reader? Like you wanted it to be salacious, but I could tell you wanted us to really just connect with your own. Yeah, experience. I mean, salacious, I think has a certain connotation and and I don't, I'm not sure... I mean, as much as I love Kirkus, I'm not sure that it entirely applies because the point of telling these story of telling the stories I told in the context of that book is to sort of highlight the coming of age process and how the things that I had to learn about operating on a human level, sexually and otherwise, um, later in life. And I felt that it was really important to be extremely candid about it because I think we're in an age where people can see through bullshit. And if everything's a rosy picture and you have no part in something negative that happened, um, you know, you have to own, own your piece of things. And 
you know, there are a lot of things in porn again that I don't think are the most flattering pictures of me. Um, but, it, you know, I'm a real person who mm-hmm. has made good choices and made some questionable choices. And, you know, I'm just in there trying like everyone else. But that was the point is that if it were, if it, if the book were to be as uh, forthcoming and, you know, unabashedly in your face, that I think people can relate to that more than some glossed over pretty picture. Yeah. Well, and when you open up a memoir with uh, a man that you're intimate with singing a Broadway musical song to get to his orgasm, uh-huh. uh, you know, I'm <laughs> gripped right away. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not going to spoil the whole memoir for everyone. Cause I want them to buy your book. First of all, yeah. that's, yes, we do. <laughs> yeah. And I think too, you actually will sign copies of your book. Is that right, Josh? Sure. Um, the at Barnes and Noble at the Grove in LA and at Book Soup in West Hollywood are two places that I will go into and um, personalize or sign. Um, yeah, you know I when I've been and do it, but yeah. that, but but it, those stores in LA are places I can go in and and personalize. Yeah, I loved seeing you in New York City going to the different Barnes and Nobles and signing your books. I thought that that was just such a nice way of showing the writer behind the cover. Yeah, I mean, I listen, and I love Barnes and Noble. I think they they have been, they've been extremely supportive of both of my books um, so far. And, you know, I I love the idea that, you know, I love bookstores and I, I I think they're important parts of communities and I want to do my part to make sure to, to help or lend whatever support I can to them. Yeah. And I have to get to, I'm not going to spoil the ending of porn again. I mean, you lived mm-hmm. it, so it's not a spoil for you, but right. let's just say Josh's parents have a very intimate history uh, with your film choices of porn, Mm -hmm. which was quite Mm -hmm. um, a shocking moment for me. But also, I could see my own parents. We've had some interesting interactions, maybe not on that level, but my dad in middle school might have opened my bedroom door and found something on my computer (laughs) that I was watching. So (laughs) yeah, but see, I didn't even have I mean, I didn't have the internet at that time. Um, So, you know, I was looking at underwear catalogs and you know, things like, you know, old school. Yeah. Uh, you weren't going n- on LimeWire. Yeah. And now like, you know, adult, adult content is so accessible. And that's why I think it's important that, you know, that I know there's a lot of discussion about, you know, what should be covered in school and, you know, all of that. Uh, but I do think it's important that kids of a certain age are aware and are aware that, you know, adult entertainment is entertainment. It's not all real. You know, I think it puts an expectation on people into how, uh, of how they think they're supposed to interact sexually with another person. And while I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of sex work and, and the the adult industry, Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, I think it's important that people, you know, are educated about it and that, you know, the, that young people aren't finding it on their own with no, with no understanding of what they're seeing. Um, yeah. But my father uh, is a urologist. And so um, discussion of sexuality and, you know, areas of the body that most people don't talk about. Yeah openly we're very conversational in our house yeah well josh i agree with you complete completely about comprehensive sex ed and yeah you know i've also been messaging josh about porn study books because there are a lot of yeah there's actually a really good one about gay porn um just called porn studies uh and i think it's just really important because porn literacy, like you're saying, it's important to understand that this is an art form and these are not everyday interactions. Again, it's for entertainment. And even though you don't share my passion of the real housewives, um, there's also an entertainment behind the real housewives. Like these are not, it's them, you know, delivering their lines. Yeah. But- yeah like you know the situations are you know clearly set up you know the timelines are spread out you know it's it's obviously manipulated but yeah you know with adult entertainment um you know look i think it's extremely to, to a large degree i think it's extremely health healthy because i think it probably you know lets people have an outlet i mean listen it was a lifeline for me especially for someone who came out so late and hadn't had sexual experiences until I was 31. Um, it, you know, it sort of, it sort of took the mystery out of it for me so that when I was in a situation to be that I was in which I was going to be intimate with, because nobody takes you aside at school, you know, they, they teach, you know, they, 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 in fact, I think I talk about it in porn again, because my dad was a urologist. He was the one that came into school and had a talk to everyone about the birds and the bees, which of course was mortifying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they don't, they don't speak to gay men and women. Um, it's all, you know, everything you learn is from, in my experiences from a heterosexual, mm-hmm. through a heterosexual lens. And so, I, you know, so for me, it was a lifeline, you know, I, I, I haven't been in school in a long time, so I don't know how people are, ta- what, what they're taught and what, how far health classes go. I would imagine that's dependent on the area and the kind of school and whatever, but, you know, there are kids out there. And when I say kids, I mean, kids on the, you know, young adults who, aren't necessarily given the tools they need. Yeah, and each school district, you could be 10 minutes away and they're teaching such different material. I mean, I was lucky in my school district that we actually did talk about gay sexuality. Um, Actually, I was taught it in middle school when we watched um, and the band played on. Um, Yes, that wasn't, I wasn't exposed to that in school as a kid. Um, but, you know, look, uh, porn is a fantasy and we need to be clear about that. Yeah. Um, but I also think, you know, and look, like I said earlier, everything that's positive typically has another side to it. Mm -hmm. And, 
so, you know, I think it all depends on how aware, how aware we are of what we're seeing and the understanding of the fact that it is a fantasy and all of that, but. Yeah. Well, so how did you come up with the title? Because, you know, it's quite provocative and I really love it, but I'm just curious where that emanated from. I don't want to get, I don't want to have your, your viewers. I don't want to give away the whole thing, but you know, porn played a role in my life um, from the time I was a, an, a, you know, a young teenager when, you know, our, our neighbor friend, you know, was screened Caligula. And then I sort of learned what, what it was all about. I'm like, wait, what, it, what, what, and, you know, and I sort of learned about it. Yeah. And then, you know, as time went on, you know, it played a role in my life, as you'll see some of my relationships, different things that happened were connected to the adult industry. And ultimately the final scene in the book that you were referencing with my parents. And um, to a degree, it was through adult entertainment that I finally felt accepted. Like that was the ultimate feeling of, you know, when my parents were so open about that with me. And, you know, again, I won't give away, you know, how it, what, what that story is in the book, but in an odd way, that was what, that, that's what made me feel like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of myself now. And there's no, there's no, no pretense. There's nothing I'm hiding from anybody or them. And it was really liberating. Yeah. And you also have a lot of dishy sections. Let's just say I was very surprised by the Ricky Lake experience. I'm not going to get too far into that. Um, <laughs> but whew, I felt for you a lot in that moment. Um, and then Miss Television Personality, who in my notes I wrote down, sounds like if Miranda Priestly and Norma Desmond met <laughs> and merged together. Um, not too. Yeah. Well, and there's a character in Enemies Closer, Claire, who mm. seems pretty similar to Miss Television personality. Mm-hmm. Um, Claire, it, you know, look, all I can say is Enemies is all fiction. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Even though, so Marcy isn't Josh Severo. You know, I think there's a little bit of me in a lot of the characters in that yeah. book. I think there's there's some of me in Marcy. I think she's a, um, um, I don't know. I think she's a little less of a confrontational person than I am. Um, but there's a little of me in Marcy. There's a little of me in her best friend. Um, there's a little bit of me in Claire, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I, I, I kind of own all of it. Yeah. There's always, there's always reality in fiction. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I have to say, it's hard for me to imagine you being confrontational, Josh, but again, I might be, what do you mean by confrontational? I'm, you know, I, I, I won't sit by if I think something, if I think there's an injustice of some kind Yeah, and whether that be you know, and it's taken me a lot of time to get to this point, but, you know, we can't control how other people see us. We can go through life um, being, you know, making honorable choices 
and doing the best we can, but there will always be somebody who doesn't see us that way or doesn't, you know, doesn't recognize that that's how we, we are operating. And I think that, um, so I think when those things happen, when I feel like somebody is not seeing me for the way that, that for the way, I, for how I see myself, mm-hmm. um, I get very, you know, and, and again, that can be, I mean, it's such a complicated, um, such a complicated situation to explain, but, you know, when, when somebody perceives you to be a certain way and you know, you're not that person, you know, you know, you're not the kind of person who would do X, Y, and Z, but this person's perception is that I always feel the need to jump in there. And if I see somebody being treated unjustly, I will, I feel the need to say something as I've gotten older, I've learned you know, what's really important? Like, is it important to raise my blood pressure over this or, you know, so I'm better about it, but yeah, I mean, if something, if I feel like something is wrong, I will jump in, you know, and I'll fight for it. Yeah. See, I feel like it's just motivated by money. I'm not motivated by, um, a specific, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, relationship with a particular you know, network or studio or whatever, if something doesn't feel right to me, or there's not the level of integrity in it that I, that I believe should be there, I will walk away. Because at the end of the day, I have to look at myself in the mirror. And I had a situation like that recently, uh, with a project I was working on, and I felt that it wasn't inclusive in the way I thought it needed to be. And so that's it. Yeah. As soon as I, as soon as that happens, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. See, I just feel that that's you being a truth teller and correcting the record about anything that's teller. incorrect. Yeah. But nobody likes a truth teller in Hollywood. Well, you know, this is, this is the land of illusions mm. and we are responsible for keeping that up. Nobody wants to face it. And, you know, a lot of people who were, who felt like, they, they, they recognize their bad behavior in porn again. And by the way, there's plenty of bad behavior on my part too. Um, but people who recognize that, who were upset by it, it was interesting because they weren't upset about what they did or remorseful about what they did or how that impacted the course of my life. They were upset that it got, that, that, that I told people about it. Oh, that it got Isn't, out there. Interesting. So it's like when a criminal gets caught, oftentimes they're not remorseful about the crime, but rather upset that they got caught. Hmm. And it's sort of the same idea. Yeah. You know, people who were upset by the material were people who, um, you know, again, they didn't stop and look and say, hmm, maybe I, you know, that, that I could see where that would be hurtful to somebody or that would change the course of their life in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, no, they just were unhappy that I told people that it happened. Yeah. But it takes a deep reflection, right? You have to do a lot of internal work, which I do every, I have to remind myself every day to do work on myself and a type of self-awareness, but I do have to attest, not that (laughs) I'm your trial attorney, but I feel that 
all of those in the memoir, those mm-hmm. you have negative interactions with, mm-hmm. they don't become villainized. Like I understand the psychology even behind the negative interaction of like what they're going through too. So I don't, I right. don't think you I, created a binary of hero. No, villain. no. And th- that wasn't the attempt because nobody is that, mm. no, not, no situation with human beings is that black and white. I mean, there's nuance to everything. And it's the same thing that happens with romantic relationships. You know, when they don't work, we tend to demonize the other person, but the truth is there's a reason we love them in the first place. And it's very easy to lose that or, or lose sight of that. Um, and it's the same thing with some of the situations in the book. There's a reason that those friendships, relationships, situations worked for me at that time in my life for good or bad. Um, they don't work for me now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, Josh, do you have an extra 10 minutes? I don't want to go over sure, time with sure. you. That's okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so with Marcy, mm-hmm. I feel she does have a lot of anxiety or at least situational anxiety. Like she keeps calling her parents. I relate because I'm an yeah. only child, but also if I don't at least text my parents, Every day, something they'll think that I have literally uh, fallen off the planet. Um, but we have, you know, I have a very close relationship, and I understand that it makes you make her so relatable. And also, like, how aware were you of the anxieties that she is trying to work through? Maybe. Well, a lot of those are mine. You know, are things that I. Um, that that weigh on me um you know and that sort of the uh, the relationship that i have with my mother although my mother is not um i don't think my mother is as um what's the word like harpy as um as marcy's mother rhonda is you know she's constantly you know making comments that she thinks are going to be helpful to her daughter but sometimes can fuel the anxiety, even though she means well. And um, my mother would, you know, is not quite that way. You know, she's very, um, you know, she would never, you know, like the whole, there, there's a moment in the, in the uh, book where Marcy's mother comments about her figure and how, know dark colors might be better for her at that moment and you know I never really had that my my mother doesn't really do that per se but you know I've observed many of my friends and people who you know it's sort of that um, passive aggressive like do you think you might want to put something on that's a little dark you know things like that where they're Mm. telling you something without telling you something Um, and you know that just plays into Marcy's neuroses. So that that's sort of what's behind that. Yeah. I mean, I'm at a point now where and I know my parents listen, so it's all good intention. But when I was vacationing in Atlantic City and I decided that would be when I debuted my rompers, uh, my parents were <laughs> like, are you sure you really want to strut around in the romper? 
it was more they were nervous about how it would come off on the boardwalk. But I said, no, if I can't do it in Atlantic City, I don't know where I'm going to show it. Well, you know, it's interesting because they our parents come from a different time. You know, yeah. my parents didn't want to take me, which is a thing that we discuss. I discuss in porn again. Yeah. You know, I wanted to take tap dancing lessons and my parents had no problem with tap dancing. But at that time, the perception was if you were a boy and in dance, first of all, that wasn't like a gender appropriate activity at that time and two would other people make fun of me and they didn't they they didn't want that so in their attempt to protect me it sort of you know it sort of had a negative impact that said you know their intentions were good and you have to look back and see you know they weren't attempting to harm they were they were attempting to protect and while that didn't necessarily impact me in a positive way um you know i i i know how they feel about me and how much they wanted to you know make sure that my life was good and happy and at that time that's what seemed right yeah. you know they would never in this day and age they would never suggest anything like you know yeah, yeah. Well, I have to say, once I was shredding my stuff in the romper, my parents were excited. <laughs> not about, not in, you know, a desirous sort of way, but understanding yeah. that I was having yeah. a certain aesthetic. And it's so interesting. I think we might be related, Josh, because I actually went to ballet lessons when I was young in Philadelphia. It's almost like I'm the younger yeah. version of you um with a different generation and i mean you're not but, that old josh i mean you keep talking that, about your age i think you're well, like 40 46 something. yeah i'm 46 oh okay that's but uh, but one of the things that i would say is that um you know i think a lot of times um you know parents see things as a reflection of them mm -hmm. you know they still see their kids as part of the family unit and you know obviously there comes a point where as close you are as you are to your family you don't necessarily you are now your own person mm -hmm. separate from that unit and I think parents particularly of a certain generation sometimes you know, have a hard time with that separation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like there have been moments where my mother said to me, like, you know, my hair will be too long. She'll think it's too long. And she'll say, you know, when I, I always made sure you had a haircut, I'm like, you know what? I was like, I'm 46 years old. It is not a reflection on you. Nobody's looking at me and saying, Josh's mother should have taken him for a haircut. Mm -hmm. It's my responsibility to go and do it. And what I look like is my you know, is of my own doing. So, but I think it's difficult again for parents of, um, you know, for parents of a particular generation. Yeah. I also find too with um, parents who came from an immigrant background that there's a lot of anxiety um, around standing out, like not assimilating enough and um, I mean, my grandmoms had, or well, my one grandmom is still alive. So my grandmoms had a sort of family trauma 
like generational trauma. And I think too, the further you get away from that, you start to see things in a different perspective. I'm not sure if that resonates, but. No, it does. It does. But it's yeah. interesting. I look, family relationships and, you know, nothing's perfect. I mean, I talk oh, yeah. in porn again about, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the suicide of a, of a very close friend and how my parents filtered the information that I got because they didn't want, you know, at first I didn't know it was a suicide. I was told that it was a, a heart issue. And then of course, when I found out, because I went to school and people were talking, um, I was, you know, even more upset that they hadn't been forthcoming with me. Mm -hmm. Now, when I look back at that, my parents were younger then than I am now. I don't know that I would know how to deal with that with a child. Um, and they did the best they could. They, they did what they thought was right. And again, what they thought was protecting me. Ultimately, was that the right choice? No, but I see where they were coming from and I have compassion for that. Yeah, that's such an important realization you have, Josh. And well, what did your parents think when they read porn again? Um, I, they had a, they, I gave them a copy of the manuscript when it was finished and edited. And I gave it to them and I explained that I wanted them to read it before it came out, but that um, I was, that it was not for the purpose of changing anything or, you know, fixing a point of view or, I, you know, it was a courtesy. Mm -hmm. And so they were very respectful of that. Uh, but I think the thing that upset them the most was that they, there was all of that time that I was being so bullied and they didn't know mm. and they didn't know what was going on. And I think it was very hard for them to read that because it's interesting because people will say to me, uh, you must be mortified that your parents, you know, have seen about things about your sex life and whatever. And honestly, that's not what, that isn't what stood out for them, which I think is a testament to the kind of parents I have, to be perfectly honest, is that, you know, their concern was not at, at the things that were so seemingly out there, you know, that you might not ordinarily discuss with your parents, that they recognize that's part of being an adult and growing up. And, um, but that, you know, the things that they, that they didn't know were going on. Yeah. So, yeah, because, you know, they probably think that there's ways they could have intervened and of course the pain you were going through. And yeah, that's yeah. really hard hitting. OK, so I'm just curious, what are you working on right now to share with the listeners? Is there another book on the way? Um, well, I did. Uh, there is a graphic novel Ooh. that I can't really talk much more about yet. Okay. Um so that will be forthcoming. And yes, I am working on a new book now. That's Ooh. fiction. Nice. So that means I'll have you on again, right, Josh? Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, it doesn't, they, you know how it I works. Know. They, it's out right away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah. okay. So there's more literature in the future. Any other projects you want everyone to know about that you're a part of? 
Um, the, the the books are are basically what I'm working on right now. I have a couple of TV movies in development, but oh. nothing that I can. Um, you can't release anything about it. Say anything too much about just because they're they involve other companies and it's not i'm not allowed to give the news on their behalf okay but when we go to your website Mm -hmm. are all of those projects will they be up there like what you've been a part of yeah i mean for the most part like in my bio things are there yeah great and i okay very i keep people very abreast on social media as you've probably know. Oh yeah. So follow Josh on social media on Instagram um, and Twitter, right? You do have a Twitter, I think. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm more interacting with Josh on Instagram, but yeah. I mean, I think Instagram's a much more, I don't know, I find it just a I find that to be the most yeah. useful platform to me. It's so pleasant. The tech, it's yeah. very tactile. I feel. Yeah. Um, okay. So follow Josh Severa. Please get your hands on Porn Again and Enemies Closer on barnesandnoble.com. Also, Josh said if you're in LA, you could go to the Grove, Barnes and Noble, right? And also Book Soup. Yeah. And they'll also ship if you're not in LA. Oh, and nice. I personalize, you know, I stop in. I'm usually there each place like once a week or once every other week. So they will uh, take personalization orders if somebody wants that. Oh, nice. Okay. And also while you're on Josh's website, look at the merchandise because all of the (laughs) promo for this episode features some really exciting sayings and sexual innuendos. You know how to, you know how to sell your material, Josh. Not me. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) okay well thank you so much josh and thanks yeah this is so exciting um all right thank you so much for listening to the ivory tower boiler room the ivory tower boiler room consists of me andrew rimby executive director mary de pippi chief contributor and jaron usta marketing director i thank them all because without their help the ivory tower boiler room would not be what it is. Also, please do donate and help support our public humanities mission. So the easiest way to donate is go to the bottom of the show notes, click that support link, and that's your easiest way to donate. We really appreciate it because we are all volunteers here within the ivory tower boiler room. Please, while you're at it, follow us on Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on our Twitter page at Ivory Boiler Room. And now here's Anne Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames Loverman rendition. Mm-hmm.